Amen. Well, we're starting a new series this morning. It's called Sunday School Stories. I'm going to go ahead and give away the title. That was pretty easy. I'm not going to make that one linger in the air for too long. Sunday School Stories, we are going to uh, basically dive into some familiar stories in the Bible that you might have learned in Sunday school. And if you didn't go to Sunday school uh, or you didn't grow up in church, I think the stories that we're going to look at are so familiar that you'll notice some of the themes or characters or things that have happened. Um, and and, and I, I just really think it's going gonna, it's gonna to help us get a comprehensive understanding of some things that we might either not believe in the Bible, that are hard for us to swallow the Bible, or stories that maybe we just hear Hollywood talk about. Like, for example, a story like David and Goliath. They made a movie about that. It's called Evan Almighty with Steve Carell. Does anybody remember that movie? That movie was, I remember, th- thank you, Christian. One person remembers it. I appreciate that. Awesome. I remember it. It was an extremely cheesy movie, but it was about uh, Noah and the Ark. Sorry, I think I said David and Goliath. It was about Noah and the Ark. Does anybody remember that or no? Okay, cool. Okay, got it. Sorry. Uh, let, me, let, let, let me jump back to David and Goliath real quick. Uh, there's a show called Ted Lasso on Apple TV. They reference David and Goliath, as in Richmond, the soccer club, being the David, and then the other team, I think it's Man, Man City or something, being Goliath. And this isn't even a, like, really a Christian show but it's kind of made its way into culture. You know what I'm saying? So we're going to jump into stories like that. Um, speaking of knowing the art, let me jump back. Did you know that there are over a dozen ancient civilizations that have something similar to a flood narrative in their, in their like, you know, founding stories? Like, it's so much more common than we think, and all we think is there's a big, you know, like, giraffe that's painted on the nursery wall with a big boat, and then Noah, and then a dove, and then a rainbow, and it's like, what, what, I, what I don't get is, did God really need to flood the whole earth to restart? No, he could have just snapped his fingers and restarted, which means there's something in that story that God wants us to know. It's not just another story. God could have said, I'm going to restart with, I'm gonna, I'm, clean slate, I'm going to restart. It would have been a whole lot easier. But I think Noah and the Ark wants to show us that God wanted a partner to do life and ministry with and to achieve his story with. So he's, he, he, he redeemed the creation that had once turned from him. So we're going to jump into stories like that. And this morning, if you have a Bible, I want you to either get it out, get your phone out, or iPad, or whatever it is that you have to read the, uh, the Word. Because we're going to jump into the story of, let me get a little drum roll real quick. This is the first week of Sunday School Stories. Does anybody want to guess what I'm talking about today? Jonah, the story of Jonah, and the, and the, and the whale, and the question mark, and the fish, the fish, Jonah, and the, the prophet, Jonah. But the reason I want you to get a Bible out or your app or whatever is because I want you to be able to flip through the four chapters because I'm only going to get about halfway through. We could do a whole series on the book of Jonah, but we don't really have time. I'm just trying to keep it around 30 minutes, okay? That's all I'm trying to do. So I'm only going to get through the first, like, two chapters. And there's going to be things that I don't cover today that I want you to be able to go back and either reread or do some further study. And Hannah is super kind. She's going to send out the weekly email this week which we do send out every single week. That's why it's called the weekly email. And if you don't get that, there's going to be a slide up here. I want you to just take your phone out and scan that QR code to get the weekly email. In the weekly email, there's going to be three resources that I included that I, if, if I were you, I would want to go and do some further study. One's a podcast, one's a book, and one is a nine-minute video. So you could at least do one because it's only a nine-minute video. You don't have to read a whole book. But I will say the book that I did put in the email, I did, re- I did start on Monday and finish yesterday. So it's a pretty short, pretty short read. But that's for you if you want to go and do further study. Does that sound good? Because I'm not going to get into everything? Cool. Let's talk a little bit about Jonah. If you're there, are you there? Did you find it in the Bible? If you have an app, then you should have found it as soon as I said it. Um, Jonah is a ninth century uh, prophet in Israel. Um, Jonah was, was alive during the Assyrian Empire. 
And it was right after the, 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 the course in history where Israel had just gotten uh, conquered by Assyria. And he was a prophet to the people. We see he's got an entire book either written by him or about him. We're not 100% sure. But he's also talked about in the book of Kings. So we can cross-reference a lot about Jonah just from the Bible. And, and before we get into like, the story, I'm not going to talk about the fish a whole lot, which you're probably like, that's pretty disappointing. There, did you know, and just doing some research about this, there are over 20 accounts of people getting swallowed by fish and or whales in the world, right? One, this is going to sound super stereotypical, but one was in Maine when the guy was lobstering. You know, like, like I, I, think, of, I think it was like a, it's not a killer whale, but what's the other one? A sperm whale, is that what it's called? He like, this whale just comes up and just swallows the guy whole, and they find him like, you know, four hours later, just spits him right back out, right? Another one in the 1800s was a guy named James Bartley. This is not in my notes. This is, I, have, I just, anyway, rabbit trail. Uh, named James Bartley. They, they were harpooning in the 1860s. Like big, like, isn't it called Moby Dick style kind of thing where they're trying to get this whale, like big, you know, waves, whatever. Uh, this kid falls into the mouth of a whale. Doesn't actually intentionally swallow him. He just falls into the mouth of a whale over the boat. They find him 36 hours later when this whale washed up on shore. It had been harpooned so much. They pull him. Some, what I don't understand is somebody's got to go in there and get him. I don't know that I would, I don't know that I would have volunteered, but they, they, they go in and get them, and they say the pigment, the pigment on his skin is completely, like, burned away from the acid in the belly of the whale. They said that his hair never grew back, and he was blind in one eye. There's an entire book about him. I don't know what it's called, but maybe I'll send that in the weekly email, too. <laughs> 20 accounts. That is crazy. So before we even read the first verse, like, I think we've beaten the dead horse on, did this actually happen? Or is it a fable? Or is it a parable? Is it just like imagery? Like, what is this? We've kind of beaten that dead horse, right? Is it a fish? Is it a whale? Like, what, what, was it a giant squid? Like, like we have, I, th- I, I think that question is actually misplaced. Because I, I, I think if we get so hung up on, did this actually happen? We forget that it's actually a work of art. This, this book is one of the most poetic books in the whole Bible. And I didn't even realize it until this week. And if we ask the wrong questions, we get the wrong answers. We're not asking if it happened or not. Martin Luther said, if it wasn't in the Bible, I don't think I could believe it would happen. But then you have other people say, oh no, dissect the book and find the problems with it. And that's where you find God's truth in it, like buried treasure, buried in the story. So we're going to jump into verse one of Jonah. Here we go. You ready? It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, I know I have a lot to read, but I'm just going to stop here real quick because this is important. We're immediately introduced to Jonah. And the reason I want to stop here is because Jonah in the Hebrew means dove. And later in the story, that's going to become a lot more clear as to why God would use a man named dove to accomplish his purpose. And God very clearly in verse 1, he says, he says what? He says, go to the great city of Nineveh. He doesn't really mince words. He's pretty clear, but all he says is preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Which immediately, if you're, if you're a Jew reading this, you're thinking, that's, that's not much of a prophetic word. Like later on, we, 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 we find out he's going to preach against it. Hey, in 40 days, the city's going to end, like, you know, burn. That's in chapter 3. But it's not really like a very poetic, very like, 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 like Amos, the previous book in the Bible, he would write, let justice roll down like streams. Like, that's beautiful imagery. God tells Jonah, preach against it. That's it. That's all he says. And, he, and, 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 and to make it worse, Jonah's one of the only prophets who would get a word for, not Israel, but for Assyria, for the Assyrians, specifically in Nineveh. 
Like, it's the, like already we're realizing the whole book is kind of backwards. Why would God appoint one of his prophets to go to an enemy nation? Like, you start asking these questions because the Ninevites, specifically the Assyrians, but the Ninevites, they were, they were, there were stories written about them where entire plains and fields from battle would be littered with corpses. They would jokingly or mockingly cut off the, the, the left arm and the left leg of people they were killing. And as they were bleeding out, they would mockingly walk by and shake the right hand, almost like a passage unto death. I mean, these people were brutal. Then they would later cut off the, 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 the head and they would give it to the widow of the person who was just murdered. These people are cruel, are they not? And God's calling Jonah to go to these people. It'd be similar, I think, to Dietrich Bonhoeffer going and preaching the gospel to Adolf Hitler during World War II. I mean, you're talking about going to an enemy nation? Like, and, and he says preach against it to make matters worse. He's not, he doesn't say go and, be, go and be friends with them and witness to them and love, buy them plenty of meals, and, and, then, and then secretly sort of push the, the truth out there like, ah, oh, God is, you know, fill in the blank. No, he says go and preach against it. So what do we see in verse 3? This is Jonah's response. Jonah runs away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Jonah just cuts tail and he's just like, absolutely not. He's the only prophet to run from God. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Let's camp out here for just a minute because we see this, just kind of like I said, you've got to ask the deeper questions. Is this whole book not backwards? It's, I'm going to, God speaks to the prophet, the prophet runs, and not only does the prophet run, but he's running because he doesn't want to go to an enemy nation. Like the, like the whole thing. Anyway, I don't want to, I don't want to. <laughs> and Nineveh is due east, and Tarshish is due west. So not only is he running, but he's running the opposite direction from where God is calling him. I think he's running out of fear. I mean, wouldn't you be a little bit Scared to lose your left arm and left leg? And maybe your head go to your, you know, wife? That'd be, that's pretty graphic. I think he's also running because he absolutely disagrees with the Ninevites for fair reason. But also in 2 Kings, we can cross-reference the prophet Jonah. Jonah was a little bit, um, how do I say, he, he kind of had this um, pride about the nation of Israel and the nation of Israel only. And in the book of Kings, in one, in one translation, as Jonah's speaking about other people groups, he says those people. Jonah, Jonah might be compared to now, and I don't know, and I can't prove it, but maybe as someone who might be a little bit racist, he might be a little bit prideful, he might, be, he, he might not want the word of God to go to people that he doesn't think deserve it. Maybe I'll say it that way, without putting a name on it. And I do think, just a quick side note, I think whenever we let our faith get to a place where we refer to certain people or people groups as those people, I think we've really lost the heart of God. Because thank God that God did not judge me at my lowest, weakest moment and, 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 and sort of equate that with who I was. Amen? Instead, there's grace upon grace upon grace. And we know from 1 John 4, 7 that God is what? God is love. And God has an affection for people. And I think when God sees people, I don't think he sees the, just the brokenness that they possess. Yes, in our fallen nature, we are, we are broken people. But I think with a little bit of repentance, God sees potential in people. I really do. I think this story reveals it over and over and over again. And I want you to, I want you to do this real quick. In the height of everything going on on the news with Target and Bud Light, I don't know who drank Bud Light to begin with, uh, I, want you to, I want you to think about this. 
I want you to think about people. I want you to think about a people, a people group, a person, an organization, a movement, or whatever. Go ahead and close your eyes. That fundamentally disagrees with your values and everything that you hold sacred. Maybe they absolutely disagree with your God. Maybe they're atheists. Maybe they're, I don't know. They sort of spit upon the morals that you hold as true. And I want you to think, if God woke you up in the middle of the night in a dream and said, go to those people and preach the gospel, what would be your response? What if he called me to go to ISIS and preach the gospel to the ISIS leaders? What if he called me to go somewhere where my life is on the line? Would I do it? Would I be bold enough to do it? Or like Jonah, would I run to Tarshish? Which is kind of hard to say, Tarshish. Would I run? Would I cut tail and would I run? I wanted to share this briefly. But when I was um, working at 1122 as an intern, we had the opportunity to share a story about a man named Ike Brown that I I think marked me in ways that I'm still kind of finding out to this day. Ike was a longtime JSO officer and... uh, his son, at 21 years old, was tragically murdered by someone in the city of Jacksonville named Tequoia Kreiner. He was, he was murdered, and, and, and sure, Ike has seen a lot, but, but he, gets, you know, he gets this news, and I don't, I don't think anything could ever prepare you for losing a son. I think about if I lost my son. My son comes with me every single Sunday, except today he's in Pennsylvania, but he comes with me to help me set up the stage, and we are, we are just best friends. And Ike gets a call that his son has been murdered. And time goes on. You know, the court, the court system moves a little bit slow. But, but, but finally the day came for Ike to show up in court. And I think in his heart, maybe walking in, you're thinking, I'm poised for revenge. I'm going to get even with this man who took my son. And Ike said, when the day came for court and I saw him for the first time, I tell you, I just loved him. That's it the man that murdered his son in cold blood. Later on during the proceedings of court and all that, he had the opportunity to confront Kreiner. And when he did, he looked him in the eyes and he forgave him for what he had done. He didn't ask for forgiveness. But I still forgave him. To take it a degree further, as the the proceedings are taking place and it's evident that this, this man is going to prison, Ike takes it a step further and legally adopted Tequoia Kreiner as his son, as his new son. You didn't see that coming, did you? So not only did he love him when he saw him, he forgave the debt when he faced him and then brought him into his family ultimately. And I just think, is that not the story of God in our lives where we were enemies of God, but he forgave our debt and he adopted us into his family? And that's beautiful. And we could probably end the whole message there. But Jonah's not feeling that sentiment right now. I mean, he's, he's still running. And he hates the Ninevites. And instead of going to the enemy, he runs for Tarshish, which we've never truly found a biblical Tarshish to this day. Synonymously, this place was actually known as, as paradise, uh, a place of great comfort, of great wealth. It was one of the furthest points west in the known Jewish world at the time in the ninth century. And it was, you know, it was was Maui, it was was Bali, it was whatever island you're thinking of, anything but like, it's definitely not Miami. What else is nice? Uh, (laughs) I think Key West is still a little bit weird. Anna Maria Island is a beautiful place. How about our beach? Good Lord, Neptune Beach, right? It was paradise. And it's as if in this story, 
Jonah is saying, not only am I going to run from God, which is impossible, but I'm going to run to the place of greatest comfort. God calls me to do something, and instead of being obedient, I'm going to run to paradise. I'm going to run to comfort. And I don't think it says this in the Bible, but I think maybe he's running to air conditioning, and he's running to sipping Mai Tais on the beach, and he's hanging out, and he's running to comfort and paradise because it's easier, and it's sweeter, and the threat of death there is pretty minimal, I would imagine. Where would you run? Where would you run if God called you to do something that you had no desire to do? You'd run to comfort, and you'd probably, just like me, you'd justify, hashtag boundaries, hashtag self-care, Hashtag me day. Hashtag I need a break. Hashtag I can't believe these are so, oh, I got to go get my nails done. Hashtag. I mean, are we not enamored? We are enamored with comfort. My wife and I, by a miraculous provision of God, just, just are in the process of buying a house. And um, that's a longer story. I'll get into that maybe one time. Thank you. But I walk in and I'm like, man, some granite countertops in here would be nice. I'm like looking around, I'm like, mm, we could hang, oh, oh, I'm, I'm going I'm to paint the whole fireplace white. Oh, just like white brick, it's going to be so, why? Because we love comfort, we love nice things, and we glorify it in America, don't we? We glorify comfort. What's the first thing I do when I walk in here for church? I turn the air to like 68, and I put a lockbox around it so y'all couldn't turn it up, because it's hot. It is hot up here. Thank you, Valerie. It is hot up here. We run to comfort. And then we look at guys like Jonah who do it, and you're like, you're like, what an idiot. Like, oh my gosh. I definitely wouldn't do that, you know? It's like, all right. What I ran to, uh, and I don't know how much of my story you guys know, so I'm going to go back a little bit. My wife and I moved to Costa Rica to be missionaries for five years on January 1st of 2020. Our goal was to be there for the full five years, and then probably extend it, and then, I don't know, maybe never come back. Speaking of paradise. And we went down, we left, and what happened like three or four months into 2020? COVID. It's a curse word in this church, I think. COVID. COVID happened. We moved with 25 bags, our two kids, one of them who was only four months old, or I think around there, and we got this awesome house. We got a suite set up. It's the first time we'd, we'd ever, um, that I've ever lived out of Florida with the intention of staying. I'd done a couple internships. I'd done one internship in Kansas City, um, and then I had um, <clears throat> come back for that. And now here we are, finally branching out on our own. I remember one night we were down there, and I was watching Friends because it's the only channel in English. And I just started, like, bawling. I'm like, I screwed my life up. I can't believe I did this. Oh, my gosh. I texted both my parents, and I was like, I'm watching Friends. The, the nostalgia is too real. You know what I mean? Like, it was a, it was a big move for us. And then COVID comes and pulls the rug out from under what everyone was doing. Certainly, I'm not the only person in the room. And we came back. And the 25 bags that we had left with were still there. We only came back with like three or four, both kids. And we were just hopping from house to house, trying to figure out what the heck was going on, right? We were living out of suitcases. We were making $18,000 a year, because that's really all you needed to live in Costa Rica. We live pretty comfortably in Costa Rica. I know this is probably hypocritical because of the comfort message. We live just fine in Costa Rica with $18,000. Can you live on $18,000 in Jacksonville, Florida? Good Lord, you cannot. It's a coastal town of Florida. I don't think you can live in Oklahoma for that much, to be honest. <laughs> and I think like any man in the house, you start to wonder, like, is this my fault? Is God punishing me by sending a virus in the entire world? 
Tell me that maybe you wouldn't think a similar thing, though, and you believe the lies. And I know some stories from in here. You'd probably agree with what I just said. This is my fault. I screwed something up. God's got it out for me, right? And I started to feel all this anxiety and worry and stress. I didn't really know what the next day was going to hold. I didn't know what job to go accept. I mean, we thought surely we were going back. You start to get worried, and it's like they closed everything in the States except for, like, liquor stores and, like, strip clubs. And I wasn't going to go to the strip club, but I did start drinking a lot. I mean, you just got that good. Every single night, I started drinking. I mean, multiple, probably, drinks. Or I would just say it was one and just, like, pour it super heavy. Because why? I was worried. I was scared. I was anxious. I thought I was a failure. And you should start drinking night after night after night. And you build a habit. It's the comfort that I had functionally run to. It is the Tarshish that I ran through, ran to. When God clearly was like, yeah, let's run the other direction. Maybe some water. <laughs> or some Gatorade. But we're all the same, are we not? I ran to it over and over and over again. I started getting these dreams. I love when God speaks to you in dreams. But I started getting these dreams. And, and you know, like, sometimes you have those dreams, and you know the ground rules of the dream, okay? I knew the ground rules of this dream. I was dead asleep, and nothing could wake me up. My wife and kids were in the house. They could be woken up, right? And I knew that, like, as soon as I entered into the dream, right? And there'd be a loud bang at the door, just, like, super loud bang at the door. And Dakota would immediately pop up. She'd get out of bed. She'd look around, pitch black dark, and she'd start walking to the door. And internally, it's like as if I was watching her do this. And I was screaming internally, don't go to the door. As loud as I could, don't go to the door. Whatever you do, don't go open the door. Because I knew on the other side of the door was some sort of intruder or person or thief who wanted what was worse for my family. They wanted to hurt them. Over and over again, it was just bang at the door, bang at the door. And as she's walking, I'm screaming, don't do it. And then my kids would wake up. And they would wake up and they would immediately be scared. They didn't know what was going on, but they were immediately scared. And the door would get kicked in, and I would wake up. And it happened multiple times. Tell me that's coincidence. It's not. Over and over again, it's as if God was saying, you forfeited your role as father and husband and protector because you've, you've gone to something other than me for comfort and for clarity and for purpose, and you're functionally dead to your family. Over and over and over again. And then one day I just stopped. I was like, I can't, I can't do this. Nearly three years ago is when I just pulled the plug. I was like, I cannot afford, there, there's, there's too much at stake for me to even flirt with a substance that would, that, would, that would affect my mind, affect my body, but ultimately affect my ability to be a dad and a husband. And also, not just in the things I do, but it would take my opportunity to ha like have this intimacy with God. Because you're supposed to be of sober mind. This was the thing I ran to over and over and over again. And praise God for the grace three years later to say, oh, I've, I've overcome that battle. But who am I to think that on the other side of tomorrow that could change? So I ask you, what are you, what are you, running, what are you running to? I mean, I know we're barely through the story of Jonah, but what are you running, what are you running to? When God is pushing you one way, what are you leaning into for comfort or paradise or selfishness or, or, or numbness or, or, or 
comfort, what, whatever it might be, there's something that we make our functional savior. And that thing, when it sits on the, idol of your, on the, on the, on the throne of your heart, is your biggest idol. What are you running to? Let's keep reading. Verse 4 says, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break <clears throat> up. This verse, for what it's worth, is why I'm a big believer that your sin actually has communal consequences sometimes. Because there were other people on the boat. There were other people at sea. And God had sent a storm to go after Jonah because of Jonah's disobedience and sin, but it was having repercussions to the people around him. Like your sin, if it goes unchecked, actually biblically would say there are some consequences to that. And how many times have you seen a sailor scared? If a sailor is scared, the storm's probably really bad. It's like if you're on an airplane and the stewardess is like worried, grab, you know, grabbing the, cha- you know, the chair in front of her, the plane's probably going down. Right, I mean, I've never seen a scared flight attendant and my plane's never gone down. But when I see a scared flight attendant, it's, the plane's probably going down. Verse five says, but Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. Let's skip to verse seven. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who was responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. I'm gonna jump to verse nine. Verse nine says, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who has made the sea, or sorry, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? For they knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you? Oh, sorry, what, yeah, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? In other words, we got to work some out here. This storm is your fault. What are we going to do to you? That's right. He said, pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Let's jump to verse 15. Then they took Jonah, at his word, right? And they threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. In the same way that Jonah's disobedience had sort of this catastrophic effect, I believe Jonah's willingness and obedience to turn back to God is what made these men actually offer up sacrifices to God. In other words, your obedience... And when you follow God, actually has the opposite, cons- or the opposite effect versus the consequence that it, w- it would have with sin. You tracking with that? That your sin might put other people in damage or in danger, but your, your, your obedience unto God might lead them closer to him. There's, there's, there's no telling if these men were uh, Israelites, if they were Jewish. But somewhere along the way, they knew we're going we're gonna to offer and sacrifice up to the Lord. I mean, that's good news. And a weird story. All right, get ready for the fish. You ready? Who's ready for the fish? Not one translation says whale. That's, why, that's all I'm saying. Verse 17, it says, Now the Lord provided. Somebody say provided. provided. Say it one more time. Provided. A huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. I just really find it interesting here that the word provided is used. I just don't really get that one. And I'm just going to chew, chew on it for a minute, but... I just, I mean, at the end of verse one, we're left to believe that God, that, that, or I get, yeah, verse one, or sorry, chapter one, we're we're left to believe that Jonah's just dead. Like in the belly of a whale, three nights. Yeah, Jonah's gone. If I'm a sailor on the boat, I'm like, that guy's definitely dead. 
One of my favorite movies is all the Rush Hour movies. That's just, it holds one, one slot, one, two, and three. And then the, and then the uh, outtakes of number two. The guy falls from like the, the top of the hotel all the way to the floor and he just goes, woo, you know he did. Like, <laughs> Jonah gets thrown overboard and they're like, yeah, he's, he's a goner. But I'm fine because the sea's calm. You know what I'm saying? Like, I just find it so interesting to think about provision when you're talking about being swallowed by a fish. Remember the guy in the 1800s? He lost the pigment in his skin and his hair and he was blind in his left eye. This isn't like a provision to me, right? But now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. I think it looks like utter abandonment. And Jonah might agree, because we have, we have no knowledge that Jonah knew that on, the, on the, this side of the story we know, but, but in Jonah's mind, did he know God was going to command the fish to spit him out? I don't even think he knew that God provided the fish to swallow him in the first place. I think he gets thrown overboard, and he's like, oh God, here we go again, right? You know what I mean? It's over. But on the other side of the story, it's God's provision, which makes me think that Jonah wrote this, because I think he knew. On this side of the story, that whole whale incident was actually his provision. And I think without knowing the end of the story, we can quickly confuse the provision of God with the utter abandonment of God. But on the other side of a very good thing, all of a sudden you have clarity. Like, have you ever lost a job that actually turned out to be a really good thing? Have you ever had a breakup? Or have you ever gone through a divorce as painful as it was? That was actually a really good thing. And I don't have time to get into the theology of it all, but on the other side of the story, you look back and you say, yeah, that there was God's provision, and that there was God's provision, and I can say all the way along the way, he's been faithful. Amen. But in the belly of the whale, it's dark. I don't know how acid and gastric fluids in a fish work, but it probably burns a little bit. It probably stinks a little bit. I know we're not supposed to get into how it happened, but how did he breathe? That's what I don't understand at all. How did he breathe? I mean, I think that's why people put the, put the whale there instead of the fish, because they're like, eh, whale's bigger, belly's bigger, there's probably room for air somewhere. And in a fish, <laughs> right? <laughs> we try to make sense of this whole thing. And just when we think that God abandoned him, he says, no. Romans 8 would say, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And I believe Jonah was called according to the purpose of God. And God might have gone through some weird, just really, there's got to be easier ways to do this. He had a fish swallow Jonah. And also, when you go through things, you need to remember, there are 66 books that tell you that the story of God is good and his plans for you are good. And he is faithful and his mercy is new every morning. When the sun rises, the goodness of God and the mercy of God is flooding your life every single day. And while you sleep, the book of Job would say there's a spirit that is, that is, that is comforting. The story of God is good, even when it doesn't make sense. Yeah, but I, I still don't have a job. Yeah, I, I, I understand, and somewhere in there is God's provision. Maybe it's the provision that he took the job in the first place, or maybe you lost the job, or maybe he wants, to, he wants you to know he's the provider in it. That even through the unknown, yeah, but I just went through a hard breakup. Yes, God, God is still provider, and he's still going to work in that situation. Just wait till it gets good, because the story's not over if it's not good. And then from the belly of the fish, we read. I'm going to read this whole chapter, so hold on with me, because it's a beautiful prayer. It says, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. 
From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. Meaning he will turn back to God. It's just not about looking at a building. It's turning back to the direction of God. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. That is gnarly. He was a human sushi roll. (laughs) To the roots. I didn't write that in my notes. That was improv. Well. (laughs) To the roots of the mountains, sorry, to the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. Oof. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. Someone say, salvation comes from the Lord. And in that moment, after he had almost made right with God and turned, Verse 10 says, the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited, gross, Jonah onto dry land. I have children. Vomit is not my favorite. I still, I, I, (laughs) anyway, it's gross. (laughs) You know what I find interesting, too, is um, in that book that I suggested that you should go read uh, by Tim Keller. It's called The Prodigal Prophet. He read it about 20 years ago. He, He expounds on that in the Hebrew The fish that swallowed Jonah was a male fish. So it's written in the masculine, which unlike Spanish, you can write words with, um, you know, masculine or feminine implied. In Spanish, certain words are just naturally written as masculine or feminine. In English, we always just put the dedicator of gender before, right? Her, him, his, stuff like that. But the fish in the Hebrew was written masculine. But then in chapter 2, when it says that Jonah's praying from the belly of the fish, it's written in the feminine. And you sort of scratch your head, and you're thinking, that had to be a mistake. But what I see, what I see in the belly of the fish, is I see repentance. And I think that it's as if the writer here is saying, yes, at the end of chapter 1, we thought a male fish swallowed me and that my life was over. But tell me, in the belly of whom do, does, does, does new life come forward, women? That women can, can in, the, in the womb, grow new life. And it's as if as soon as Jonah turns, the writer remembers when he's writing it. Oh yeah, but from the belly of a female fish, he cried out because the fish is pregnant with life. That you thought the story ended and it was over in verse 17 of chapter one. But I'm telling you, all the way to the end of chapter two, there would be a complete reset of Jonah. Meaning, this is his fresh start. And tell me, when, when Noah comes up from the ark, what does he release into the air? Does anybody know? A dove. When Jesus is baptized in the river Jordan, what descends upon him? A dove. Jonah is vomited out of the whale, and what comes on shore to Nineveh? Jonah the dove. A new fresh start. I think repentance was the whole shift in this story. 
Because what we see in verse three, or in uh, chapter three, excuse me, is a complete restart. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And here's where it all changes. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Tell me that in verse one, chapter one, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. This is a restart, is it not? We just spent two chapters learning what not to do when God calls you to do something. And now, here it is in chapter three, where I think the story could have begun if God wasn't completely enamored with stories of repentance, amen? It could have started here. Chapter three could have been chapter one. But for some reason, the writer wanted us to know something about a turn or a repentant moment leads to greater potential. I think somewhere he wanted us to realize that there was a heart that was an enemy of God, but turned, remembered who God was, put God in right standing where he belongs, and his entire story changed. Because now he's walking in obedience. I mean, could the story not have started in chapter 3? I mean, come on. Did we really just waste two chapters? No. God wants you to know that there is something full of potential tied to your repentance tied to your ability to turn back to him. When once you were disobedient, that if you would turn, that if you would just turn and you would just remember, God, the Holy One of Israel, who has always provided for me, he's been good to me and I have a story to tell and I have no reason to believe that he would stop being good to me now. He repented. He repented, and I think that if chapter 3 Jonah bumped into chapter 1 Jonah on the street, I don't think they would recognize each other. Maybe because, and I don't know, just comparing it to the 1800 story, he lost pigment in his skin, doesn't have hair, is blind in his eye. But that's not ultimately why they wouldn't recognize each other. I think they wouldn't recognize each other because one person is running away from God, and there's something that just weighs heavy on people who are running from God. I've seen it time and time again. I think new Jonah, chapter 3 Jonah, would look at him and say, oh, Oh, the role of repentance. Oh, if you would just turn and remember. Charles Spurgeon wrote, if you are renewed by grace and you were to meet your old self, I'm sure you'd be very anxious to get out of his company. (laughs) I don't disagree. Does anybody have a story where you look back and you think, if I was my old self, oh gosh. Just a quick show of hands, because I haven't known you super long. If I met your old self, would I recognize you? Yes or no? No. I don't know how you're supposed to raise your hand to that, sorry. (laughs) Praise God. Praise God for his grace alive in you, amen? I'm gonna go ahead and uh, call the band back up. This morning I wanna close with just a few thoughts I have about repentance. I think the first two chapters of this show us what not to do, but also I think they show us the beauty of turning to God and the beauty of repentance. My first point is repentance. Repentance doesn't change the past, but it does change the future. Meaning there's some things that you can't undo in your life that you have to own. You just have to own it. When I came back from Costa and really struggled with drinking, I just have to own it. I just have to own that. But I can change the future because repentance is a powerful thing. To repent, the word literally means to turn. It just means to turn. You're just turning the other direction. But 
I do want to make a caveat here. You can't just turn from something and not turn to something else. If I turn from the west wall, now I'm just facing the east wall. You can put down the drink, but if you're turning to maybe a judgmental mindset, that's something you can turn to towards other people. If you put down the drink, but you turn to just another thing that's a crutch, I'm just going to watch TV mindlessly until I can fall asleep. That's still turning to something, right? If you turn from an affair, but now you're addicted to pornography, have you really gotten anywhere? One sin is just private and the other is not. You still turn to something. Are you catching my drift? When you repent, you turn from the thing and you put God back on the throne where he belongs. You turn to God. That's what you repent to. So many times we talk about what are we repenting from, but I think we should talk about what are, who are we repenting to? repenting and returning to God. The second point is repentance doesn't rewrite the story, but it does redeem the story. That Jonah now, when he goes to Nineveh, has a story to tell. The city's going to go down in 40 days if you don't repent. And I can tell you, look at my skin and my lack of hair. It's true. God is good on his word. Unless you repent. lack of hair. Upon repentance, Jonah's hardships are redeemed. Without it, they're just still hardships, still trials. The last thing I wrote was, repentance unleashes potential where you're previously stuck in bondage. That at some point in Jonah's story, he, was, he had agreed with the lie that God did not want what's best for him. And that was bondage. Until he repented and realized all of chapter two, salvation comes from the Lord. He put it back in right standing. Abraham Kuyper, a Christian theologian, he'd, he'd, he said, if I was asked to sum up the entire Bible, I think I would use the book of Jonah, specifically chapter three, verses one through three, because from his perspective, he saw that the first Jonah failed, but the second Jonah would eventually come. Jesus would eventually come one day. And he would not be disobedient, but he would be obedient to the point of death and death on a cross. That he would not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he would pour his life out for the sake of other people. People that were enemies towards him. Make no mistake, Jonah being called to Nineveh and Jesus being called to earth are two people being called to enemies of God. We natural state were enemies of God before the grace of Jesus Christ. But he would still go in obedience. And he wouldn't simply come like Jonah and say, turn or burn. He would say, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He would come and he would say, I have come to give you not just life, but life to the full, it says in the NIV, or abundant life. I came to give you abundant life. promise the Holy Spirit one day to live within us as dwelling places of God. In obedience he came. He left the comforts of heaven. Think about this. God created air knowing one day he was going to have to breathe it himself in, the, in himself in the lungs that he had. He created skin knowing that he was going to wear it on his body. And from the dust that he made Adam with, 
He knew he was going to walk in the same feet in that dust. Because he was the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth that you, an enemy of God, might be called a son or a daughter of the Most High. That Jonah fled in disobedience. But the story's going to get good. Hold your breath because there's going to be a second Jonah that comes. And he's going to offer life. So I ask you, have you believed? Have you, have you turned? I, I, I didn't turn from a life of party and I didn't turn from a life of uh, shame. I didn't turn from a life of addiction just to turn to church or to community groups or to roll the rink night. I'm going to be there for that. Watch out. I didn't turn from the things of my past and my disobedience just to turn to be coming and sitting in here on the weekends. I turned to Jesus. That's the only one you can turn to. Have you turned to him? Have you, like chapter 2, had a moment where you realized that you were no longer on the, on the throne or in control of your own life, but Jesus could be? Have you repented? Has he brought you up from the pit, like Jonah says? And have you put that in right standing? That I would not have every good and perfect thing that I have had it not been for the goodness of God in my life and the grace of Jesus Christ bow your head with me this morning as we pray. I want to give you that invitation right now in this moment. I don't have to know. You don't have to lift your hand. This is between you and God. But every day is a perfect day to repent and turn back to Him. And just tell yourself, today is a good day for repentance. Today is a good day for me to put God back in right standing and on the throne where He belongs. We turn from the things that we've held in the grasp of our hands, the struggles, the addictions, the trials, and we turn to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And we say in this moment, God, give us the grace to just believe. The Bible would say if you would confess with your mouth, but you would also believe in your heart that Jesus came from heaven on a rescue mission for you to, to, to free the ransomed. If you would just believe But I pray right now for you. Grace upon grace upon grace for a life not just lived from a repentant moment, but I pray that you would live a life of repentance over and over and over again. I want to close with one last thing as you keep your eyes closed. It's an old Puritan prayer. It says, work in me more profound and abiding repentance. Give me the fullness of godly grief that trembles and fears, yet ever trusts and loves, which is ever powerful and ever confident. Grant through tears of repentance that I may see more clearly the brightness and glories of the saving cross. Jesus, help us. Remind us, God. Draw us closer to you. Help us see the things that we struggle with right now in this moment as your provision in our lives and help us trust. I believe there's an invitation for somebody today to just trust the Lord. Just trust him. His plans are good. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your grace that is towards us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as we close this morning, we're going we're gonna to close in worship. So when you stand with me, 
I do want to remind you, we're not going to have an extended time of prayer or anything, uh, but the altars are always open. And there is something powerful about coming down to the, to the rugs and kneeling. And as your body kneels, as you actually kneel and bend your knees, a lot of times you lead the way for your heart to do the very same thing and just bow before God. If you need prayer this morning, the altars are open. But let's worship.